Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The Fifth Column. 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 This is Camille column, Foster. Column. I'm a partner at Freethink and a founding member of this fine podcast. Most weeks we bring you a rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. You've probably heard that rap before. But other times we serve up an extended conversation, uh, something a little less constrained by the news of the moment. For this dispatch, Matt Welch and I sat down for a conversation with Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, husband and wife evolutionary biologists, both of whom are former faculty members of Evergreen State College. If any of those names sound familiar, it may have something to do with the controversy ignited at Evergreen in the summer of 2017 when Brett raised objections about something called the Day of Absence. Our conversation with the couple, however, was really expansive, super interesting, and ranged from topics like free speech on campus, navigating taboo scientific topics, and the role of evolutionary biology in markets and politics. Yeah, markets and politics. Bit of housekeeping before we get into the main event. Uh, This weekend, May 11th, and apologies to everyone listening at some point much, much further in the future, but I mean May 11th, 2018, I, Camille Foster, will be joining my very good friend um, and friend of this podcast, Thaddeus Russell, who hosts the Unregistered Podcast um, in New Orleans for his Renegade University weekend event thing. You can learn more about that event at Thad's website, ThaddeusRussell.com. And one other event. Earlier that same week, on May 8th, I, Camille Foster, will be moderating a debate for a fine organization known as FIRE here in New York City. Uh, The topic of that debate will be, is there a campus free speech crisis? The evening's interlocutors will be Andrew Sullivan and Jonathan Haidt, who will be arguing in the affirmative. And on the opposing side, Suzanne Nozzle and Jeffrey Sachs. The evening is going to be really cool, um, and I'm really excited about it. I hope if you're in New York, you will come out and join. Uh, I do believe that FIRE will be releasing some digital uh, version of it. But if you're in New York, come. Uh, And uh, half of your ticket price actually supports FIRE, who does a lot of really fine work uh, in the service of promoting free speech and free expression. Uh, For more information on that and for tickets to the event, you can go to the FIRE.org. T-H-E-F-I-R-E dot org. And with all of that out of the way, here's our conversation with Brett Weinstein and Heather Hine. The fifth column, 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 column. The reason we have you both here today, apart from your pleasurable voices and uh, generally good company, is that back in the summer of 2017, uh, Brett, you found yourself at the center of um, it's an equity and inclusion maelstrom, perhaps, is a good way of saying it. <laughs> That's very well um, <laughs> And this was at your former place of employment, a place called Evergreen State College, where both you and Heather were members of the faculty there. Um, this is a story that for folks who are listening, um, most of you will be very familiar with it. You've almost certainly encountered it in some context, some place here on this podcast. Our very own Michael Moynihan covered this story at the time for Vice, went to campus to interview you, Brett, and actually gave us some background on a past dispatch um, and seemed a little bit shaken by what he had experienced. I won't try to unpack all of the details here, but I I did want to try to give sort of a brief sketch of some of the essentials. This is necessarily uh, uh, omitting a great deal of important detail, but you guys can find 
extensive coverage of this in various places. And I, I would suggest starting with uh, the piece that, that Michael did um, and also uh, a recent appearance you did on uh, Nico's podcast the with fire a couple of days ago that I just listened to. It was yes. Pretty good. Um, it, that was a good podcast in which we, we talked in depth about uh, the, the challenge to free expression on college campuses and, and associated uh, material. And I, I suspect we'll probably visit some of those things, but in terms of the broad strokes, and please uh, tell me if I'm getting something wrong here, uh, there was something called the Day of Absence. This is a, a decades-old evergreen tradition wherein minority students and faculty would voluntarily remove themselves from campus for the day. They participate in programs, and it was also uh, apparently some sort of symbolic representation of the supposed to re- provide a symbolic representation of the value they provide to campus and the way that they the various ways they contribute, highlighting it by sort of removing themselves. Um, it's something that had gone on for many years, but in 2017, the organizers opted to modify the program and requested instead that white students and faculty remove themselves from campus for the day. At that point, Brett you authored a note to fellow faculty members via a listserv, which was just sort of the general way that you all communicated. Um, And in that note, I think it's fair to say that you expressed both your strong support for the intent behind the day in general, but your very real concerns about the new modification to the program. You wrote, there's a huge difference between a group or coalition deciding to voluntarily absent themselves from a shared space in order to highlight their vital and underappreciated role in a group or coalition encouraging another group to go away. You describe the first as a forceful call to consciousness, and you describe the latter as a show of force and an act of oppression in and of itself. They foreshadow the hell out of what comes next. I mean, the campus kind of descends into this potentially dangerous panic. There were angry protests. There's still video of this that folks can see online. Um, Reports of students blocking entrances, other reports of students patrolling campus with baseball bats. I've seen some descriptions of what might be described as kind of a quasi-kidnapping. Maybe that's too strong. Maybe it's not strong enough. Um, And of course, the requisite calls for you to be fired um, or at least suspended without pay Um, eventually both Brett and Heather would part ways with Evergreen, reach the settlement with the college last year, and you both detailed your experience and ongoing concerns in a piece that you wrote for the Washington Examiner this past December. And so that's the end of a very long setup. Did I get all the important essential details there, correct? Um, There's no way to get all of the essential details. What happened unfolded over the course of a year. And um, to really understand the story, one has to understand that trajectory. There's no way it's worth the time of your audience on this podcast (laughs) to go through it. But I would say what you said is uh all accurate. And from the point of view of recapping the story, as people will have heard it, it, you know, it's... It's uh, it's imprecise. It's incomplete, but it was accurate, and it was it was as good a summary as I've heard. Yeah, you know, well, I appreciate that. Um, and and I certainly appreciate the nuance as well. Well, maybe we could start here. I mean, the the two of you are are currently unaffiliated. You are no longer at Evergreen, but you're I guess going out. You're speaking. You're having conversations like this. But I've had a number of conversations of late about 
the state of free speech on campus. In fact, I'll be participating in an event with FIRE, uh, a debate that I'll be hosting where... Tell the podcast listening audience what FIRE is. I'll provide the details. <laughs> FIRE is the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Um, I'm on the advisory board for FIRE, uh, so I support the work that they do, but they advocate for free speech on college campuses. Yeah. And at the end, I'll, I'll provide some more details about the event. But the framing question for the, for the debate anyways, is there a free speech crisis on American campuses? And this seems like a question the two of you, I'm certain, have been asked before, but have a unique perspective on having endured some unique circumstances. I'd say probably the archetypal instance of, uh, say, a, a speech-related panic on campus. So please. Well, I would say, you know, I, I get asked this question all the time, and I've heard lots of other answers to it as well. I will say there's a basic problem with that framework. There's actually two problems. One of them has to do with the idea that this is a free speech crisis, and the other has to do with the idea that this is about college campuses. It sounds the, like everything is the right, problem. There. That's pretty okay. much it. Okay. Um, so uh, what I would argue is that, first of all, free speech has such a tight association with the First Amendment, mm -hmm. which, of course, really only protects against governmental infringement on free expression. And so... The way in which free speech intersects the questions that we're talking about is arbitrary. Occasionally, one of these incidents happens in a place where plausibly it is governmental failure that has caused the infringement. Sure. And so there are tools that come from the First Amendment that are sometimes useful in fending off um, this oppressive impulse. But that's not fundamentally what it's about. There's no reason that the public should be more concerned when this happens at Evergreen, which is public and therefore does amount to a governmental structure that can oppress, versus when it happens at Reed, which is private and doesn't happen to be uh, subject to First Amendment protections. The fact is what's troubling is the impulse to shut down uh, the discussion of certain ideas. It's also not the speech of the speakers that is necessarily the most important characteristic. Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that a speaker does or does not get to speak is not nearly as important as the audience's ability to choose to listen to a perspective. When somebody is no platformed, what happens is somebody decides what somebody else can hear, right? The fact that the speaker doesn't or does not get to convey their position is secondary compared to one's right to choose what ideas to entertain. And on a college campus, these things are absolutely vital. In other words, one does not know ahead of time. There's no formula that we can provide that tells you which ideas are so far beyond the pale that they cannot be considered. And in fact, if we were to go back through the history of ideas, we would find that many ideas that we consider mainstream now were once considered beyond the pale. So we have to leave ourselves... Interracial marriage? <laughs> for example, uh -huh. to take one example. Sure. So free speech isn't the right rubric. The audience's right to decide to engage an idea doesn't show up anywhere in that free speech issue, nor should we be more concerned about it at a governmental institution than a private one, nor is the distinction between a private and a public institution particularly clean or relevant. So if you were to compare Harvard, for example, to Evergreen, uh, you would say, well, Harvard is private and Evergreen is public. But Harvard is largely fueled by NIH and NSF money, which is public money. 
Evergreen is almost entirely fueled by tuition money, which is private money. So the mm -hmm. fact that Evergreen is technically public is um, beside the point. Sure. And then the last issue is whether or not this has anything inherent to do with college campuses or whether college campuses are simply where we are seeing this unfold first. And I would argue that what we're really watching is a breakdown in society's capacity to reason with itself. And yes, of course, that has manifestations on college campuses, but it won't be limited to college campuses. And if you look at the, the one story that doesn't fit with all of the others so far, it's the Google memo story, hmm. where Google fired an engineer for doing exactly what they asked him to do, responding to a prompt about questions of equity between men and women uh, among the engineering staff at Google. So James Damore wrote a memo that analyzed that question. He did a very good job uh, in doing so. They fired him. And uh, so that was a Google, a private uh, corporation that decided to fire an engineer. And then the NLRB, uh, which is a governmental organization, said that his firing was valid, not on the basis that what he had said was wrong, but that on the basis that the harm done by what he said was so great that it justified his firing. So this is this is civilization um, losing its coherence, right? Google has a huge effect on what we think because it has a huge effect on what we see when we search for things. It understands or it at least is capable of evaluating uh, our email for patterns and figuring out what it is that we're beginning to suspect. Google is a very dangerous entity um, if it decides to take an active role in controlling what conversations can happen. And Google has told us that at the very top, it is actually interested in seeing some conversations silenced. That should worry us at least as much as what's going on on college campuses, which is itself not a small matter. I think that one way of looking at the kind of uh, free speech as an artifact of the First Amendment, and so therefore we have to think about the governmental thing, and you know, Edit a libertarian magazine. You're going to hear this constantly <laughs> from your own readers of like, you know, X is not a free speech issue because there is no government involved. Um, I think one clean way of doing it is just talking about the culture of free speech. Right. So like there's no nobody got harmed when people boycotted. I mean, no government flexed a muscle for the most part when the Dixie Chicks were the target of everyone's uh, hate back in 2003 or whenever it was. Uh, but I would argue at the time, this is a problem for the culture of free speech. These are people who are, you know, they're artists who are performing in, I think, in London. Uh, it, it was they said they're embarrassed of their president. Um, like, what are we doing? Why we're, we're like trying to organize a boycott of their songs on country music radio. You know, it looks it. Looking in the rearview mirror, it's bananas. At the time, people were were all uh, exercised about it. But I think in terms of the culture of free speech, that's the problem. Like these, this has kind of nothing to do with anything. We're just trying to say that this category of expression is beyond this little pale or among this community, and that's a problem and a, a way of of looking at it without getting foundered necessarily on all of those things. I'm curious about the notion that it's sort of a society wide like. Um, we've talked a lot here because we work in the media and work in New York and Moynihan works advice. And God knows there's a lot of uh, 20 since he's not here. We can like uh, talk about uh, talk shop. Them. There's a generation gap The 20 somethings, the woke millennial kids who are working in media have a much different perspective on a whole lot of things having to do with speech, having to do with the Me Too movement and what exactly are the boundaries of acceptable male, female uh, kind of a uh, um, uh, mating rituals and just, you know, and anything else. Um, uh, so the theory that we've bandied about here is that, OK, you think it's sort of 
on just a college campus things, but they're graduating and they're moving out in in the world. But that kind of uh, suggests that it's sort of like the campus is is the furnace and they're spitting out these lumps of coal out out there. And this is all terrible uh, metaphors here, I I recognize. But the way that you uh, posited this is like maybe it's just a society wide thing and the campus is is a a place where where obviously people are ready to go and kind of clash and do battle as it always is. I think campuses are concentrating the problem that we do have a generational problem and it's in part, I mean, these, these issues have been discussed widely, but it's about the rise of iPhones and tech and the decrease in children spending time outside and getting physical experience with their world uh, and becoming more social creatures. And, you take a generation that has been raised in that way and you put them into a campus culture where there are some disciplines that have become so enamored of postmodernism that they actually do not necessarily believe that there's an objective reality out there to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. And you, if, if those kids who actually haven't spent much time racing down hills on bikes or climbing trees and falling and experiencing gravity in real time are told, yeah, actually objective reality is, um, is a sign of the patriarchy and it's about power and it's not actually about reality. That feels really confirming to certain people. And I would say that Brett and I spent 14, 15 years in classrooms with mostly millennials and it's really easy to disabuse people of these ideas in real time when you have time, when you can build trust, when you can build community, and then you know yank the rug out from under people when they say things that are actually batshit crazy. <laughs> and, you know, and, and when you actually take them also into the field, hmm. and you say, okay, now we're going we're gonna to get dirty, we're going to get wet, we're going to get uncomfortable, and we're going to come back and eat good food and share stories around a campfire. And you're going to see that we're all reasonable people who make mistakes and have beliefs that are congruous and incongruous with one another, and that's okay. And that is what being together in community is about. But if you have a classroom, and we know for sure that there are lots of classrooms out there in which dissent is considered harm. So there is there is a conflation of dissent to who just uh, any kind of dissent, any kind of disagreement is considered mm-hmm. harm. And so emotional harm is conflated with physical harm. And I think it's easier to have that happen well, if you've not actually been exposed to physical harm, if you don't actually know what mm-hmm. it is to experience your own body as a real instantiation and in like meat space. So you're totally bought into the Lenore Skenazy, John Haidt uh, yes. theor- theorem. I mean, that's that was the highest trafficked uh, thing I think in the Uh the history of the reason website of like it's free range kids or the absence of helicopter parenting creates this expectation that no one gets hurt. And also everyone's kind of uh, protected. And then those people go to college uh, and then that's mixed up with sort of this uh, heterodox academy thing where everyone thinks a certain way or one way you, you well, describe it those as are two different dynamics. Yeah, right? But that they meld together like you. So but, kids are. Ex- ex- but the deviation from the mean, like the mean has to be some particular set of ideas and the the facts that views on college campuses have become in, even more um, uniform. Uh, than they have been in the past, that the partisan yes, membership, uh, the, the data that I've seen suggests that the partisan membership of faculty in various departments has consistently moved from being, it was overwhelmingly progressive before, now it is almost exclusively progressive in many departments. The two things that I'm I'm wondering, because I'm I'm with you both so far, but I'm wondering if there isn't something to the fact that both identity and uh the the sort of alien other the conservative views on on virtually anything um they seem to be at the center of a lot of these panics i'm i'm my mind runs back to emery 
where they had someone shock Trump 2016 all over the campus. And students responded by saying in, in one of the pieces that was written about it, that they didn't feel safe um, knowing that someone was around, apparently, who has views that are different than their own. Um, shock can be a... Uh, Dangerous. Yeah. But the other thing, I mean, with race in particular, and you mentioned postmodernism and the fact that, you know, there is no objective reality. It's apparently, though, there is something incredibly essentialist about most of these conversations as well, which doesn't seem at all congruent with the postmodern theorem that there is no objective reality. The, the only thing that I can't escape is the necessity of being black in a particular way. There's and a, the only thing that I can't escape is my inability to engage in these conversations because I'm insufficiently white or insufficiently right. black, never insufficiently white. You can There's only this be unironic too, and yeah. badly executed biological essentialism uh -huh. from the same people who are telling us that sex isn't real. Yeah. Right. It's it's completely incongruous. Well, but, talk about that. I mean, you guys are evolutionary biologists. So like how did how did that uh, academic background, the work that you've done in this and from what I understand, like it's good work. People say nice things about your work. Um, uh, how did that sort of prepare you for that moment or what do the fights look like in that world? Uh, and uh, what, what are those academic tensions? How does that play out? OK, so I want to connect up a couple different things here. Um, first of all. Evolutionary biology is an incredibly powerful tool for understanding any living system or creature. That does not mean that the current best practices are up to the challenge. And so there's a way in which our field is a little bit disappointing in terms of the tools that it gives people. And the closer you get to human beings, the more disappointing those tools are. Because mm -hmm. actually human beings are quite different than even our closest relatives uh, at an evolutionary level. We just function differently, and we can talk about that a little bit. But there's a way in which evolution is, we're still new at understanding this puzzle. We need to understand ourselves at this level because it has relevance to how we behave. And so what Heather and I have been doing in small classrooms, and the, you know, there was a great thing about Evergreen. Evergreen came apart in an absurd way, and that had something to do with its core defects. But there was also something about it that was very, very special, which was we taught students full-time. A professor had a class full-time, and that class could go on for a full year. And students took one class full-time, and it could go on for a full year. Wow. That meant you knew every student in the room. You knew many of them well. You knew what was going on in their lives. And that is, there's a, a difference in the level you can teach people when you know who they are rather than standing there and being able to look them in the eye, but not knowing the way they think. And so when Heather talks about taking students into the field, we could do that because they didn't have another competing class that they had to be back for. We could go into the field for a week or longer. Heather ran some excellent study abroad programs that went on for months um, so anyway, when you get students in those kinds of conditions, there's room to allow them to explore whatever sorts of uh, misconceptions they have and to discover that they are misconceptions. Hmm. Whereas otherwise, the expectation typically in an educational environment is if you have something wrong, we'll tell you what it is, you'll correct it, you move on to the next thing. It's all very linear. It's the students are brains in jars model of education. Anything else about them is not our concern as faculty. And that's unfortunately widespread. So the other thing I wanted to connect in here was um, what you said about identity and the conversations becoming incoherent and the missing conservatives and all of that is true. And that's one set of problems. 
But the more fundamental problem has to do with a misunderstanding of the way education works best. Mm. So if you think about what a college looks like and you think about students flowing through and going to their classes and hearing from their professors and having discussions, it's all abstract, right? And the problem with an entirely abstract landscape is it is possible to be dead wrong and to be rewarded for it, right? There are lots of dead wrong ideas that people have made careers on, and then it becomes obvious later that they were wrong. But the point is it didn't stop you from being rewarded, and so you thought it was a great idea. The thing about nature is it doesn't work like that. So if you take students into nature and they have a wrong idea about creatures, then they will find out that it's a wrong idea about creatures because the creatures won't be where they think they're going to be or they won't behave in the way that they're expecting them to behave. Um, likewise, you can do this with machines, right? If a student thinks they understand how an engine works and it's got, the student's got an engine that doesn't work, the student cannot take a bad idea and convince the engine to work with it right? You either figure out what's stopping it from working or you don't. So any system that takes people and abstraction out and replaces it with experience with actual things that either do or do not meet your expectations is capable of training your mind to understand how things really do work. Yeah, so, if you end up offended at the engine because it failed to work, <laughs> you are revealing more about yourself than you are about the engine. Sure. So I'm not arguing, we're not arguing that there's no role for abstraction. Obviously, mm -hmm. we've dedicated ourselves to evolutionary theory, which is a largely abstract discussion. But there is, I would argue, no role for a purely abstract education. A purely abstract education runs the danger of being socially derailed into faddish notions that just aren't right. Whereas if you take somebody who's had some experience learning some complex physical skill, you know, carpentry, for example, or, you know, troubleshooting machines or figuring out how to navigate patterns in nature, that mind is inherently better able to protect itself from bad ideas because it has something to compare what things actually do function like when they function. It has some uh, tendency towards nuance. You know, you don't tend to be black and white in your thinking if you've gone out into nature and you've watched, you know, the frequency of some species drop off proportionally or, you know, end abruptly at some space and then start up on the other side of uh, some sort of a barrier, you begin to think about what it is that causes these processes. And that is irreplaceable. That so needs to be in every education. I would add, too, to pick up on what you were saying earlier, Matt, um, with regard to free-range parenting, use the precautionary principle when deciding whether or not to mess with childhood. Don't drug the children. Don't give the kids screens when they're super young. Send them outside and let them be their wild, unruly selves. And try not to agree to let the school system align them all in tight rows and drug, especially the boys, when they are active and they don't feel like sitting down straight. And see what happens later on as they develop at different rates to different strengths uh, through an educational system that actually allows them to explore who they are, as opposed to is trying to manufacture automatons. Some of what I'm uh, hearing, uh, particularly what you said, Brett, seems like kind of the classic split between the hard scientists, the sciences and the social sciences, right? Like, I mean, or the liberal humanities that people are like, say, ah, you know, screw that. We should all be, you know, uh, producing welders out there and, uh, and this kind of thing. Uh, isn't it kind of a classic complaint? Um, maybe, uh, I would say 
Yeah, I don't see it so cleanly as a distinction between quadrants of the college. I see it as a distinction between people who have had real experience with which they can compare theoretical experience and those who haven't. And in fact, one very uncomfortable thing that I've heard said, but I I can't get it out of my head now that I've heard it, is that um, the college kids who are most likely to try to shut down ideas and prevent them from being voiced are also ones who are unlikely to have had the experience of travel, Hmm. right? Now, travel is obviously a complicated thing to arrange and expensive, so it will be disproportionately people who are economically oppressed who won't have had that opportunity. But at some level, there's something about arriving in somebody else's culture and being confounded by it. Just simply even noticing that somebody else's culture has arbitrary rules in it right? That there are taboos that you will accidentally violate because you don't know that they're even there, Mm -hmm. right? Discovering that that's true of other people immediately implies that it's probably true of you too, and you just don't know it. So there's something about experiences that force the mind to update. And whether education should always involve travel, maybe it should. It should definitely always involve things that are not socially conveyed abstractions. Even if socially conveyed abstractions are the most important thing that we do, just having practical experience in some realm, right? I also would imagine every person should know some quadrant of the market well, right? There's something that you're passionate about that gets bought and sold. Mm. And if you can come to understand how that market works and you can watch even more importantly how that market fails, right? Why are black bicycle parts suddenly popular? Right. There's a very good reason that black bicycle parts. So are you're popular. talking not about frames, but like derailers and shifters and such. Yeah. yeah. The aluminum parts that don't actually need to be black because you could polish them. Hmm. Right. Instead of painting them or anodizing. them. Well, the reason is because the bicycle industry has a problem, which is that it now knows how to make parts that last a very long time, which dries up its market. If you make a part black, then when you scratch it, it looks scratched because the part underneath is shiny. And so the point is you sell you, you feel your bike is old and needs replacing much sooner if the parts show their wear rather than you get a scratch in some, you know, in your metal crank and you polish it out. It looks as good as new. Mm-hmm. The thing will last as long as you will. Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway, watching a market fail and understanding that actually markets are amazingly powerful things, but they fail regularly. And mm-hmm. just even being able to spot that they do and that some of what you own is shaped the way it is precisely because it will fail in some way that serves somebody's interests other than yours. That's important if you're to navigate markets intelligently. It sounds like planned obsolescence. It is exactly, it is a million versions of planned obsolescence. Mm. Planned obsolescence is one, um, but, you know, getting you to be, you know, we've watched Apple sabotage their own devices so that your annoyance will cause you to buy the new model. Right? Oh, you're talking about the bat- battery gate. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, Camille wouldn't know about can, that because his apps no, get regularly get everything shipped Everything updated him. as it, soon as it's available. One question I wanted to, to get from you since you've been Evergreen. And Evergreen, like Reed College, is a it's a it's a psycho hut of crazy commies, obviously, uh, and has been for a long time. Um, you don't have to respond to that. But uh, Greg Luciano from Fire, the mm-hmm. aforementioned Fire. 
I commissioned a piece from him at Reason back in 2009. I think it's called PC Never Died because in conversations with him, he was saying all that stuff that we were talking about in 1995, it never stopped. It just stopped being talked about. And of course, it has been we've been talking a lot about that in the culture the last three or four years. Um, and so uh, asking uh, asking this uh, guy to, to sort of characterize how things have looked on his perspective on college campuses. And he said sometime around 2014, he actually pinned it to Ferguson, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing mm-hmm. and kind of the rise of Black Lives Matter. Um, it went from a pretty consistent three or four on the dial to nine in a hurry when it came to uh, just like constant roiling controversies over speech. So in your tenure at Evergreen, with the preface that Evergreen is a little bit more uh, kind of a liberal arts college, it's more kind of in the Oberlin sort of category of colleges or or whatever. Um, uh, How would you characterize the trend you know, over the last 15 years, was there an inflection point? Yeah, it's a step function. It does look like that. It does look like there was an inflection point. And, you know, some of it is those students back in the late 80s and early 90s who were part of PC 1.0. Yes, it Mm. never went away, but they're all grown up now and they're faculty. So that's part of it. Um, Part of it is, you know, Ferguson, I think, is an interesting point to, to note because that reveals the role of technology in making this possible, that suddenly the whole world can see what many people have known because they live this every day, right? And so suddenly a lot of really well-intentioned liberals are saying, oh my God, did you see what happened? Because now finally people can see. And so that also really moved things forward uh, in, in a major way. I think there are several other issues as well. Yeah, I would argue that there's a there's a tipping point issue um, and that, uh, you know, postmodernism both does and doesn't get enough attention in the story. The formal postmodernism, the school of thought is um, there's a kernel of truth at the base of it, but it's by and large not very interesting once you get past that. But there is something about the power that it buys you. Once you uh, sidestep the idea that physical reality is out there and that we are obligated to pay attention to it, whether we like what it does or not, right? Once you buy yourself freedom from what actually is, then you are entitled to do all sorts of things you wouldn't otherwise be entitled to do. And I think there came a point at which some coalition that maybe even correctly understood that civilization was in some way rigged against it, detected that it had enough power to fight back. And at the point that it began to fight back, the, you know, the maybe one of many tragedies of the postmodern viewpoint is that it is absolutely tailor-made to to discover bad actors and to promote them to the head of the movement. So in other words, if you find a movement of people that is empowered by a correct but imprecise sense of things being not quite right, and then being told, actually, you're not obligated to pay attention to what actually is, you're entitled to fight back because it's all about power anyway, well, then you get people rising to the top of that movement who think, hey, this coalition looks like it could be um, well, it's basically a, a coalition of what might be called useful idiots, right? It's people who are ready to go um, to fight back against a structure that has something. And 
ultimately it will break down. It's unstable, right? Because it is a coalition at the point that it wins the spoils uh, and attempts to divide them, uh, it will savage itself. But I think that the tipping point, the step function is the result of something detecting, you know what? It is a moment at which we finally have enough power um, to accomplish something, to take it. Uh, and, you know, at, one of the things that happened at Evergreen, and it mirrors something we've seen in a much larger larger sense, but at Evergreen, because Heather and I were insiders, we saw uh, we saw the the documentation was that there was a concerted effort to force people who were marginal with respect to this intersectional revolution to declare fealty to it in order to make it more powerful. So, in other words. I wouldn't have predicted it myself, but probably should have. There was effectively an attack on white women, on men who were simply gay, and on Asians. All three of those groups were effectively given an ultimatum. They were told, actually, you're part of the problem, unless, of course, you want to come over here and help us with this revolution, in which case you're going to become an ally, which is a term that um, doesn't mean what those of us who would look it up in a dictionary thinks it means. It's actually a kind of subservience. And so the point is, if you liked the idea that because you were a woman or you were gay or you were Asian, that you were part of the group of people that, you know, faced white oppression, then you were in danger of losing that status and being grouped with white folks unless you demonstrated a willingness to exert force on behalf of this movement. So that sounds preposterous, I'm it, sure. It sounds like protocols of the elders of Zion-esque. While the, the conversation about you know, what may be happening on campus, the trading between various groups and, and people signing on to intersectionality as kind of an organizing principle, and a, as a practical matter, it is the case that today, and in media, for example, we reg routinely observe this, but I'm sure you observe it in your own lives, both as, as academics, but in general, there are certain topics you're not supposed to talk about. Um, race and IQ, for example, is something that has been circulating a lot of late. Um, I told you you're not a couple supposed of to talk recent, about <laughs> I know last week, last week, we actually talked about the uh, conversation that Sam Harris had with Ezra Klein, um, which um, I, I laid out a couple of thoughts on it. But at the end of our podcast, you know, I'd say there is an empirical question here, whether or not there are average IQ differences between different population groups and pretty much everyone else in the room said, fuck that noise. I don't want to talk about that. IQ is bullshit. And what, I think what Matt said exactly, if I could quote him directly yeah. is what, what good is IQ? When has Absolutely. there ever been a time when IQ has been useful I, for anything? And what I said, this and there the are two evolutionary biologists this is in the, the room. first conversation about IQ that's interesting, uh -huh. then it'll be the first it conversation be. It about be. But IQ. This isn't, right now I'm not giving you IQ per se, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that there are correlations between IQ and various important, useful outcomes. Um, and that there are conversations that Whatever, people who Calvinist. are in evolutionary biology, for example, might want to have when they're investigating biology, when geneticists are investigating the various things that make us who we are. If there are important questions about not necessarily IQ differences amongst races, but IQ in general um, and IQ among different groups, one can't necessarily even conduct that kind of inquiry today at a minimum if you conduct that sort of inquiry talking about it publicly 
in any way that doesn't conform to the accepted narrative or at least the expectations that people have for the appropriate way to think about things um, becomes really difficult. There's, there's almost this axiomatic beliefs about the way that the world ought to be, whether or not there is scientific evidence to support it. As if, um, if we believe strongly enough, we shall make it true. Right. To sharpen this and make it a question, do you have any sense of why or how that dynamic works, just practically speaking? And are there good reasons to be having conversations like this about IQ, about race, um, and about gender differences, for example, which is another um, incredibly taboo subject uh, that you have to actually have politically correct perspectives on, which for the two of you, again, as evolutionary biologists, as scientists, as researchers, there might be times when you have conclusions that don't conform to those axioms that we already believe in. So, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm going on a bit here. Okay, so um, there are like six levels of stuff that we need to deal with in order to address your question. Un unpack, <laughs> unpack what you will. Okay, so the first one is that um, this is a perfect example of how a bad idea is um, ascendant. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there's a good reason that we haven't talked about, or at least I haven't heard it talked about, um, why this particular topic. And so I will say, I've said this before, sex and gender is a walk in the park compared to race. Right? <laughs> I agree. Evolutionarily speaking, yeah. sex and gender is not perfectly well understood, but the basics are understood. They're not controversial amongst us evolutionary biologists. And what's more, they're fascinating. And uh, I think we already know enough to say um, the answer ain't perfect, but it's not too bad either. Right. By not perfect, he means it's not that ugly. We don't have much to be scared of right. there. Mm. Right. It's it's just going to be what it is and we should proceed. We're not going to be democratizing pregnancy anytime soon. You know. <laughs> More's the pity. On the other, on the other <laughs> hand, there's a, the, the rest of what goes on in sex and, and gender. We actually have a fair amount of flexibility, which doesn't mean that the roles that we have in the present didn't come to us evolutionarily, but we have some choice about whether to keep them. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, that's I think that there's a conversation that many people will find a relief when we ultimately get to talking about sex and gender in proper terms. We have very little to fear there. Mm -hmm. The problem with the race conversation is that although I know which way I'm betting, if I'm wrong, right, if the differences between populations, which are logically actually guaranteed to exist, right, if the differences between populations with respect to cognitive capacity are major rather than minor, then we have a terrible new problem on our hands, hmm. right? It's one thing to have those differences exist in a world where um, we can't be sure about them because we haven't gotten sophisticated enough to detect them. It would be another thing to live in a world where we actually were good at detecting them and it turned out that they were big. Now, I have lots of reason to think that they aren't big, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, I will say, I'm not the first person to say this, but I don't even know which direction they would go, right? As but I think the majority of this question is going to be um, answered in the other part of the equation, Right. There are major differences in intelligence between population, but they have lots to do with what kind of enriching environment you had um, that caused your mind to be able to capa be capable of 
solving the puzzles that it solves. Right? So the That's, other half meaning as opposed to genetics. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But here's the, here's the big crux of the matter is this is a place where what evolutionary biology has delivered in terms of tools are, is actually inadequate to have this conversation meaningfully, mm-hmm. right? And I, I'm going to point to exactly the thing, and we're not going to be able to get to a level of detail where everybody's going to be able to follow it, but I want to just point the paradox out. The problem has to do with the term heritability, which is obviously central to evolutionary biology. That's a term that changed its meaning. When Darwin talked about heritable traits, he was talking very generally about anything inherited from one generation to the next. Sure. When geneticists discovered the mechanism whereby DNA encodes protein through triplet codons, that story was so (laughs) elegant that people looked at it and they said, oh my God, that's the mechanism of Darwinism. Well, it isn't. It's a mechanism of Darwinism, right? right? But we've been suffering from the outgrowth of having actually formally redefined the term heritability around that particular mechanism. And that particular mechanism doesn't even account for the majority of the genome. In fact, it's less than 5% of the genome that functions that way. And the rest of it, we've been treating as junk, as amorphous, as unimportant, and it isn't. We just don't understand understand it yet. So... So here's, here's the paradox that we need to wrestle with. Let's say that there is a, a phenotypic trait, a trait that people can see on one surface, right? Let's say, uh, let's say it's broad noses, okay? Mm-hmm. And let's say that the notion that broad noses go along with sub-average uh, intelligence, mm-hmm. that that notion spreads, Okay. And then people with broad noses go out into a world in which the expectation is, oh, here's a person with a broad nose. They are likely to have lower intelligence. And that results in a less enriching world, in a world in which when such a person accomplishes something, it is less likely to be recognized or it is more likely to be attributed to luck or to somebody else's work or something like that. Here's the problem. When we measure heritability, we will actually discover that there is a heritable difference in intelligence. And it's not wrong. There is a heritable difference. Why is there a heritable difference? Oh, it functions through people's expectations out in the world based on a phenotypic trait that has nothing to do with the way the brain is structured. That's right. Yeah. So what I'm telling you is when, when a biologist says heritable difference, that biologist may even think that what they are talking about is a blueprint in the genes that causes a brain to be structured differently. They are not talking about that. We are not there yet. We do not know, right? And what we do know is that the brain, the human brain, is so complex and, in fact, is the most, um, is the least pre-wired of any brain that has ever existed on Earth. Really? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Our brains are the most responsive to early experience, to culture, to direct learning, all of those things, which is why our childhoods are longer than any other creature also. So the point is what we have is a creature in which software gets written after birth. Our genes allow that to happen by creating a brain that's amenable to having the software program. Does that, sorry to be dumb and and also to interrupt, but... uh, (laughs) No, you're all right. uh, But is the obvious conclusion from that, that the kind of computer genetics 
transferability is less important in our species than in all other species? Uh, I didn't quite understand. Yeah, the yes, uh, thank you for <laughs> understanding that. That's that's uh, that's very interesting. Could, can you translate what what Matt is trying to say so that other people can understand? Because I think I understand what you're talking. No, about. just like the the let's if, if your the, brain is a hundred. Uh, and if every animal, if the lobster, if, if Jordan Peterson's lobsters are 100 and the human brains are 100, um, then, uh, you know, let's say the lobster receives 85 percent of its uh, encoding from genetics and humans is 5 percent of their right. yes. something like right. that. So, yeah, that's exactly it, right. One wants to be really careful. Exactly. Right. That's exactly. what I want. That's that is what precisely I want to hear. 85 percent <laughs> of Jordan Peterson's lobster's brains. We don't, need, from genetics. We don't need your <laughs> carefulness, Brett. You would keep it over. <laughs> yeah. There. Right. Damn it. With lobsters, it's probably uh, it's much probably closer more to 98 percent. Yeah. Is yeah. it really? Yeah. But I mean, the, here's the way to say it. Um, first of all, we all know everybody in this room knows uh -huh. that blank slateism is dead right that seeing human beings as a blank slate is a sucker's bet right which it is we're not blank slates here's what never gets said and i can't figure out why we are the blankest slates that have ever existed That's on this planet fascinating. right we mm -hmm. are the blankest slates does that make us blank slates no does no. it tell us what percentage no sure. but the fact that we are the blankest and the fact that the most recent phase of our evolution involved us getting blanker than we were right how we can are, you measure that well if we can just look at our closest relatives right we can look at the great apes that aren't us and we can say well the they have shorter childhoods right there's less stuff being encoded i mean this makes sense too if you think about it you can well, look at the measures of of learning and how much culture <clears throat> culture they have so intergenerational overlap and length of childhood relative to lifespan hmm. and um how much, uh, how, not only intergenerational overlap with regard to grandparents living at the same time as grandchildren, but actually living in mixed generational and mixed sex groups, such as there's interchange of information that couldn't, they couldn't have been born with. Yeah. So those are all sort of evidence of um, high level of culture, of a culturalization rather than genetics. And so you, so you see this in any of these sort of long lived mostly large bodied, um, long childhood generational overlap organisms like dolphins, like other great apes, uh, like parrots, like crows, wolves. So these, these are the other organisms and there's, there's more elephants um, that have just a ton of social world that also makes them who they are. They're, those organisms are not born full-fledged crows or elephants or dolphins. Mm -hmm. They become that through learning from first their mothers mostly, and depending on their mating system, their fathers, their siblings, and their friends, then their peer groups. And, you know, we're the only species, as far as I can tell, that specializes teachers, <laughs> you know, that walks in and says, okay, I, I shall appoint you as the one who teaches the kids, yeah. as opposed to everyone's going to be learning from everyone else how to be a chimp, how to be a dolphin, so how to be a kid. Hardware, software paradigm comes to mind. Like the notion that I'm... I've my phone has some sort of hardware in it, but on a regular basis, Apple sends updates that provide additional features. And the software is the, is the cultural environmental programming that's taking place is both in, in ways that we would expect. Um, and in ways that might surprise us that are a hell of a lot more subtle, I imagine. So I, I want to add one thing just to make the model, uh, a little better. Okay, please. Um, so we don't typically, so Heather and I have been doing this in classrooms with students, but in general, in public, we don't properly distinguish between culture and learning, right? Mm. The overlap between culture and learning is so substantial that we tend to just sort of imagine that they're the same thing. But the fact is, 
growing up, we all learned a fair amount from doing stuff. And then we learned a bunch of other stuff from human beings who spoke the same language that we did, who told us things. And a lot of stuff is intermediate. You know, somebody can tell you how to play tennis, but there's no amount of telling you how to play tennis that makes you a good tennis player. Yeah. Right. They can give you a head start. They can tell you here's some things to, you know, keep your eye on the ball rather than the racket, that kind of thing. But at some level, you're going to have to get on a court. And you're going to have to try stuff out and your body is going to have to learn how to employ the crude model of tennis that you heard or read and turn it into a model for playing. So we learn a lot of things directly and then we learn things from other members of our species that know them or know something related. The part that we learn from other members of our species, that's the culture, right? There's lots of learning that's outside of culture. But think about what fraction of what you believe you actually know that came through words. Hmm. It's immense. I mean, how much of what you actually know have you actually tested? It's a small fraction. So what that tells you is that it really shouldn't be a surprise that we're the blankest slate that has ever existed because we're the one creature that has a mechanism for taking a blankish slate and loading it up with really cool, useful information, right? Language, which allows us to convey abstract thought. You know, a chimpanzee may have tremendous capacity to think, but it doesn't have tremendous capacity to convey. It can show, but it can't really convey absent showing. So we have this very special, very unique human tool, and it gives us an advantage, which is that we can convey abstract stuff. That advantage comes at a huge cost, which mm -hmm. is long childhoods. But the point is, that long childhood is a cost worth paying and how enriching that childhood has everything to say about what you're capable of as an adult and we do a, an atrocious job at figuring out what to give children in order to make them more capable we, you know we're, we're we're just we're hundreds of years behind where we should be in terms of providing kids with tools that would enrich their minds right school is School's just a bummer, right? <laughs> Everybody knows it, right? At some level, we've all sat there and faced forward and thought this doesn't make any sense, or at least I hope so. I know I've thought uh -huh. that almost every time I've been in a classroom. I think it was the first time my parents uh, like threatened to sue the Long Beach Unified School District. And I was <laughs> seven, probably when that started so, to hit home. Um, I It strikes me in, in that kind of uh, blank slate thing that to invert kind of Camille's uh, uh, IQ question that... The taboo over that, and I, I know that you detected me that it's my inherent political correctness or something that makes me uh, allergic to that, and it's well, there's, not. There's it, a little it, bit of that. It's it's <laughs> it's no for me. It's actually I hate the sense of determinism with IQ, and also people who talk about their own IQs. I would I want to punch them all in the face because they all suck. Yeah, I never um, I never mentioned mine. Uh, <laughs> it's very, I, very I, high. I can, the whole thing is is uh, is greatly off putting um, to me, but I hate the sense of like it's it's uh, it's deterministic somehow like like that that matters more than the other stuff your own uh, decisions and also the 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 fortune that you have in your own culture and one sure one concept about this um uh that kind of gets a little bit to the blank slateness uh there's this uh concept uh and this also gets to your kind of markets uh, uh, discussion thing too um i think there's some un economists uh, who came up with a notion of intangible goods by uh Coming to America, if you are a, a peasant from Guatemala or something like that, you're from a poor country uh, and you're in poor circumstances, the act of moving to the United States gives you overnight an extra $1 million in intangible goods because mm -hmm. you are coming to a place that has institutions, better soil, culture, sure. 
wealth, other things, opportunities here, and you respond. Those uh-huh. people change. It's not just that you make more money. Yeah, it's yeah. that all kinds of good stuff happens in a place. I mean, well, at least we used to have good institutions in this country. They're going to hell in a handbasket now. But like that, but that is, I think, ultimately the more interesting story. And I wonder if the fact that there is, and of course there's a taboo around the subject and mm-hmm. and, and, and that podcast that I will never uh, listen to because my God, two hours of Ezra Klein, shoot me in the, <laughs> and Sam Harris, like, shoot me straight it in the eyeball. It doesn't go, it doesn't go uh, any place, unfortunately. But, uh, but the fact that there's a taboo makes people want to look at it. And I kind of wanted that, like, given your own well, actually, experiences. It, makes, it is, makes almost no one want to look at it, no, which it is, makes you which is the danger. It, but like, no, actually, but it makes people not... want to obsess over much about what ultimately is not the most important I question. Think, but no, 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 no. It, it's back, better than that. Yeah. It's better than that. Okay. So here's the thing that people just can't see because when they hear heritable, they think blueprint genes brain. Right. Right. That's not how our genomes work. And that's certainly not how our brains work. So here's the thing. If, if I tell you that there is a heritable genetic difference in average cognitive capacity between population A and population B, you have just heard immutable, mm-hmm. right? It's in the genes. Right. Oh, shit. But what I told you before is that it could be that your nose shape is in the genes and that causes the world to interface with you in a way that has a different outcome developmentally, which means that's not a failure. That is us misunderstanding what it means for something to be heritable because we don't understand that that term doesn't mean what we think it means when we say it at the Thanksgiving table, right? right? When we say heritable, we sort of think in Darwinian general terms. When a geneticist says heritable, they think in these very narrow terms that you would find absurd if we unpacked it here, right? I mean, the fact is your heart, right? You would think, well, a heart must be heritable. It's not heritable. You know why? Because we all have one. What happens when everybody has a trait? Its heritability drops to zero because heritability is defined as that fraction of the uh, variance that is due to genes. If there's no variance in having a heart, there's no heritability. So you can tell right in that definition, there's something weird going on with this term. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Sure. So what I'm telling you is there's a lot of stuff that's over in learning culture space that won't show up as heritable, but even a lot of the stuff that does show up as heritable isn't immutable. It might be perfectly amenable to us intervening in that landscape and providing, you know, A, correcting for biases that aren't right, and B, providing enriching environments, and C, and this is going to haunt the landscape here, we also have to deal with the difference between the negative variance and the positive variance, mm-hmm. because it's very easy to screw a system up, right? Oh. It's not very easy to make it work better. Right? It's much easier to screw it up. You can screw up the way a brain works by having lead in water. So, you know, what fraction of the heritable genetic differences that we're seeing actually have to do with the fact that there are, you know, traits that are that predict your exposure to lead that have very little to do with anything. Right. This is a destruction of capacity that might have been that is ruined by exposure to a heavy metal that we're not built to deal with. So anyway, uh, all I would say is there's a lot that won't be heritable, 
But even the fact that some part of it may be heritable does not say that you could not intervene productively or that it would have to be through some sort of breeding. I, it feel, I, I feel better already. The, the <laughs> question, I think the question that I asked that, that kicked this off was about the, the various spots that seem almost just too toxic to actually touch or investigate. And it sounds like, especially given the, the sort of back and forth that we that we've had here, Matt, um, or at least the, the perspective that you just articulated, because we're not much of a back and forth. We love each other. Um, but the oftentimes it seems like what gets in the way of us having those conversations is, if I hear what you're describing properly, the simplistic reductions of certain concepts that we have um, it, that we have in common parlance. So the notion of race as these concrete uh, particular identities. There's a, a prototypical black man, apparently, who has all of the, the genes that are common to black people, including potentially low IQ is what I think people perceive that they're hearing. But I, I suspect that it's not just that it's more complex, that heritability is more complicated than you suspect, but also this idea of blackness is much more complicated than most people expect or appreciate, which further complicates things um, and, and makes actually communicating things to people uh, really, really challenging. So if there's a lack of, of scientific literacy and aptitude among the general public, then certainly having conversations about those things is difficult. But it's also the case that a lot of the dust ups around these issues aren't narrowly related to the sciences either. And there are like, likely to be trade offs. So I I'm not even going to hazard to guess what they might be over in the race space. Mm -hmm. But in sex, um, for instance, with regard to like the Demore memo, the Google memo. Sure. Um, women are underrepresented in STEM, right. in the science, technology, engineering, math. We are assured, right? Um, well, we know that women are actually graduating with degrees that are relevant to the ratio that they take jobs in, as software engineers at exactly the same rate that they're getting the jobs as software engineers. So at the very least, places like Google aren't discriminating on the basis of the fraction of people applying because males are getting about 80% of the college degrees in computer science. Mm -hmm. Does that mean the colleges are discriminating? I doubt it, but you know, at the very least, it's not Google. The general but, read on that is discrimination happening somewhere along the way. Discrimination, where girls are being discrimination must be happening, yeah. right? Um, well, there's good evidence cross culturally that men, that boys and men have higher aptitude, especially at the extremes, so higher and lower aptitude at the extremes, mm -hmm. with regard to things like spatial reasoning and analytical ability. You know, the classic one is like ability to imagine what a 3D object would look like rotated in space, right? That's the one that's been repeated over and over and over again. And girls are, on average, better at things like reading, right? Like language processing stuff. And so what we see in a lot of these tests, uh, cross-culturally and in the U.S. and in the, in the weird countries, right? Uh, is that boys are outperforming girls to some degree in STEM, and there are all of these moves, all of these initiatives in place to correct that you know, extreme disparity that must be the result of discrimination. And there are no initiatives in place to correct what should be equally regarded as discrimination against boys with regard to reading if we are taking a fair read of the literature. Hmm. Or... Boys are better on average at one thing and girls are better on average at one thing. And we should let boys be boys and girls be girls and to each their own. 
-hmm. Like choose, allow children to choose what they're actually interested in and best at. And on average, we see people who are really good at math, but even better at reading, choosing careers that don't go into STEM. And that looks like it actually ends up being the case of why a lot of girls who were good at science early on end up not going into STEM because they're actually better at other stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're actually driven to go into careers that involve people and not things to use the sort of the classic example. But but it's true. And no one is pointing to girls being better than boys at reading as evidence of discrimination against boys, even though, A, it might be partially, given the way the modern K-12 education system is set up, and B, if it is, I mean, if it isn't, then we should at least agree that the failure of girls to perform at the same level as boys is probably discrimination to the exactly the same extent as girls outperforming boys is evidence of discrimination. Are we creeping up towards like 60, 40 uh, college graduation rates at this point? Yeah, it's, it's really skewed and it's just getting more skewed and no one is complaining about discrimination. Well, some people, the men's rights people will right. always complain about right. that. <laughs> uh, do you have kids? Do you mind yeah. me asking? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the male-female split? We've got two boys. Two boys, okay. So like... So biased against the, girls. The moment... <laughs> I see. That's right, it I was see. intentional. Yeah, dude. Yeah. I mean, you, Camille has a, a newborn uh, girl. I've got a nine-year-old and a three-year-old uh, girl. Uh, and uh, you might have a lot of notions, um, you non-parent listeners out there, and especially you 23-year-old green hairs who want Brett to be fired and perhaps tortured. <laughs> um, and if you um, listen this far, good for you. Uh, yeah. Good for you. You might have a lot of like really great notions about you're going to give Sally a truck and you're going to give Johnny a Barbie doll uh, and it's going to work out great. Uh, like by age two, probably 18 months, maybe nine months, mm -hmm. you're like, Jesus Christ, boys are a nightmare. I don't want boys anywhere. They're just like hanging from trees upside down, punching each other in the grunting like stupid apes. They're they're awful. Sorry to insult your kids. Uh, but I, I, I felt girls. really lucky to have two boys, actually, because I thought the way the girls go offline is going to just drive me crazy. So it was easier but, to have boys. And girls, I mean, all of the stupid cliches are so true. The girls are just like creating really complicated social like labyrinths with 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 like traps and things like that they're really in, they're, your daughters they're, are building traps in your house uh, <laughs> actually it's more her friends than, uh, than 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 she is but like it's it's incredible these kind of like social structures that they're creating yeah. boys are not creating social structures they are kicking soccer balls yeah, into the fence at each other it right? is I, no but like it is it is shocking the, the single most shocking thing about being a parent by far was the difference in the sexes and like how uh, how incredibly powerful it was from a, a young age playground peer groups. It's nuts. Like it, it makes I'm, me laugh. I'm tempted to chase some of this gender stuff down, um, but I actually heard you both talking about this uh, incredibly eloquently on a recent installment of the Joe Rogan podcast where you, you were both together. I would direct people back there and perhaps we could do some some slightly different work. Um, the. The left eating its own is a mm. phrase that I've encountered in the past. And one of the things um, that I was talking to actually Anthony Fisher about um, when we were getting ready for this conversation is the the fact that the inter the intellectual dark web, I think, is, is the phrase. And you can provide some context and explain what that is, Brett. Um, but that the intellectual dark web seems to be dominated by sort of conservative voices Seemingly, it at least perhaps seems to be particularly concerned with this 
these these kinds of phenomena that are occurring on the left. And one wonders, I mean, there are certainly examples of speech prohibitions on campuses on the right, like certain groups, a pro-Palestinian group or something that might be um, facing some sort of obstacles on campus. Um, there are certainly conservative people on campuses um, who have ostracized folks on the left uh, in different instances. At least I know the folks at FIRE have um, taken up cases where they are advocating on behalf of conservative, on, of a liberal student uh, in a circumstance like that. So I wonder about the ideological complexion of the intellectual dark web. And I wonder what your thoughts are on what the consequences of having this conversation, this, in my estimation, much needed conversation about the need to be able to have complicated, potentially dangerous, I'm using air quotes, you can't see, conversations in public, um, the, how it all works together. I'll stop there. So first, let me just say intellectual dark web is a term coined by my older brother, Eric Weinstein. And uh, it's a term that makes some people uncomfortable, including me a little bit, because the dark web itself is obviously a place where uh, lots of stuff happens, some of which is perfectly horrifying. Mm -hmm. And so there's a question. What Eric was saying in coining the term intellectual dark web is really that this is an intellectually unpoliced space, that it is a space outside of what he calls the gated institutional narrative, which are the stories that we are supposed to believe. And it is a very interesting conversation precisely because nobody involved in it um, believes in those rules. In fact, I think everybody uh, associated with the intellectual dark web is sort of constitutionally resistant to being told what questions they're allowed to think about or what answers they might uh, be um, uh, allowed to to advance. Mm -hmm. So in any case, the idea of the intellectual dark web is a space that is intellectually free at a moment in which the mainstream intellectual space is increasingly constrained by things like what we were talking about before. Um, in terms of the um, association, there is a, a very clear focus amongst all of the folks who are associated with the intellectual dark web about um, the free speech crisis or whatever the proper term for that would be if we were to refigure it, right? Then there's a reason for that, which is that we're all people who would tend to be shut down by the mainstream that wish to maintain control over the narratives that uh, are central to the way we govern ourselves and the way we interact. So it's not surprising that A, people in the intellectual dark web would be prone to being deplatformed and B that we would be particularly sensitive to the danger of ruling certain opinions, um, uh, beyond the pale. As for the political complexion of it, it isn't at all what people think. Mm -hmm. And this has been something that Heather and I have discovered in a very odd way. So what happened, um, to us at Evergreen felt and was almost literally like being kicked out of the political left where we had spent our entire lives, right? The left told us, you're not welcome anymore. In fact, you're not even left. You're right. Or, you know, if it's really pissed at you, you're alt-right or you're a darling of the alt-right. These are the things that were said. Right. None of this was true, right? Uh, I'm still as far left as I was before. I'm skeptical that the left knows what to do. I'm very skeptical of what the left 
advances in terms of policy proposals, but in terms of my values, they haven't changed at all. Um, the interesting thing, though, is having been effectively ev evicted from the left, we ran into all sorts of other people who we thought might be a bit right of center, who it turned out were actually also left of center and had mm -hmm. also been similarly evicted and then misportrayed. So there is a way in which everybody should think twice about why you expect that people are on the political spectrum where you think they are, because maybe they aren't. Yeah. Right. And in each case, you ought to just check whether or not you think that for a good reason or you just think that because you've heard that somebody's over there. So, you know, the, the intellectual dark web involves me, it involves Heather, it involves Eric. We're all left of center. It involves Jordan Peterson. He's a little bit right of center, but if you actually listen to him, there are certain topics on which he sounds downright conservative, mm -hmm. and then there are other topics where he really doesn't. He's a little bit hard to peg. Right? A, I mean, I, I just uh, uh, reviewed his book for uh, reasoning and got kind of uh, deep into his business. Um, the classical liberal um, yeah. who's a little bit obsessed with the postmodern Marxist left, uh, and and I think he has developed a... Um, and this is an interesting kind of question for, I think, a lot of people in the intellectual dark web. Maybe it is for you, too. Um, there's a reward system over there, too. His fan base comes on that. It's a min minority of his uh, interactions or when he sort of like swells up and says men must be dangerous, you know, and or, you know, or when he criticizes feminists for being potentially submissive. And that's why they are, uh, you know, uh, they don't criticize Islam that much. And this guy, like when he rises up and like trolls a little bit, that's exactly when he's rewarded. And that's not his best work as far as I'm concerned. Like his best work, he's he's is uh, uh, his kind of clinical practice is sort of pragmatic. Um, buck up, straighten yourself. I still I'm like straighten up <laughs> my back, my posture after uh, reading his book. Um, but uh, but then the reward structure is precisely when you are out there transgressing, you're dancing on that kind of borderline uh, where you're supposed to uh, of, the, of the sort of taboo subjects. Right. Yeah. So it's hard not to become corrupted, I think. In that but is process. it is it the reward structure? Because, I mean, part of that is there's a there's a bright red warning light. I mean, that is those are the flashpoints where people start to scream at you. It's not bro it's not is making only, 90 pulling 90 G's on I'm, Patreon. A I'm month. with you. But that's, so but that's, that's a reward not, structure. But that's not uh, but that's not the point that I'm making. The, the question I'm asking here is, is it a situation where what he is saying predominantly to the audience that's paying for the subscription on Patreon is he's pressing hot buttons over and over again to keep them paying? Or are they perhaps tuning in for the substance, in which case the outrage is what seems to respond most loudest to the things that he says that are in many cases I, I find, or at least often, because I can't say many, I only monitor him so closely, but they're often misconstrued. Like yes. it's the, it's the conversation that you have about gender roles, for example, where the person who's sitting across from you keeps insisting that what, that you're saying something you're not saying at all because right. they, I mean, the they don't care BBC, about nuance. No, but if you look at it, like if, if you go on YouTube and you have a fan say Jordan Peterson's greatest hits, sure, it's going to be seven times him that, smashing that may be, in the mouth. That may be the that's, case. I mean, that's, that's yeah. what's well, going on. But oh, so, so we need to be, um, I think we need to be fair to Peterson here. Yes. There is a distinction between the broadcasting of some kind of reward that would typically persuade somebody 
and whether or not he is altered in what he believes or what he says based mm -hmm. on it. And I don't sure. think anybody can be certain. Probably he himself can't be certain. Um, on the other hand, I think Jordan Peterson is three things that we can see, right? He is a, a guy who is telling people, primarily young men, to straighten up and get their lives in order and self-author and all of this stuff, right? So that's, there's something... I hesitate to use the term self-help, but I can't think of a, Absolutely a better is. one. Nothing wrong right? with that. Nothing wrong with that. And in <laughs> fact, if he's taking people, you know, especially people who might fall into the alt-right or something, and he's sure. getting them to, to wake him. up, more power to him. Mm -hmm. um, he is a messianic figure, which is something that I think he has a very uncomfortable relationship. He's aware that people see him this way. And sees he, himself a little bit in that way, too. He may, but he also I know he's worried that that people see him that way and that that suggests things and has implications. And then there's the thing that he has, I believe, um, so far been least well recognized for, which is that he's actually a top flight intellectual. Right. He is somebody who has done very high quality work building what appears to be a model of human psychology that certainly borrows from the best of what takes place over in that field, but is also independent of that field where that field goes uh, insane, right? So he's not vulnerable to the replication crisis that is engulfing the rest of psychology because he's very careful about which conclusions in psychology he pays attention to. So his, uh, his psychometric bent um, basically frees him in large measure from the fads that circulate in psychology. But in any case, what I would say is, uh, there's enough overlap between what Heather and I think about as evolutionary biologists who think about humans and what Peterson as a psychologist who thinks about evolution think about in tandem that we can actually sort of evaluate how good he is at this. Hmm. I don't think there is any chance that you could say something to Jordan Peterson on the topics in psychology that he holds most dear and broadcast enough love at him to get him to say stuff he doesn't believe. Sure. I think he is completely deaf and intentionally deaf to what people want him to say in that space that he... Um, and that is what has helped make him ascendant. And that is that is the good part. Right. Very much the good part. So the intellectual is an honest broker, which doesn't mean he's right about everything, mm -hmm. but it does mean that he's not going to be... Um, persuaded by Patreon followers or people applauding to think things about psychology that he doesn't actually believe. He's arrived at all that stuff on his own. And for better and worse, I believe he'd be very hard uh, to move um, emotionally on that front. The messianic stuff is a little dangerous, right? I don't know where that leads. The self-help stuff probably is to the benefit of the world that people who otherwise don't have a direction are seeing somebody that they can admire and they're following it. Um, it's authoritarian by definition on some level. I mean, it's, it's instructive, but I'm broadcasting. These are rules uh, for life uh, for sure. Um, but uh, I, I, I didn't, I don't mean to uh, cast him in a negative light. I was actually trying to say that uh, uh, he's, I mean, I think there's a, the messianic stuff is probably the ultimately the most troubling and, um, and it's actually when he rises up and does his Cobra strikes that that aren't that sometimes it's it's funny and witty and and, and good and on point. But it, it, for me, it's ultimately the least interesting. But I was shocked because his reputation precedes him. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
you get to page it takes it to page 302 literally uh, before you get to um him bitching about postmodernism on college yeah. campuses like <laughs> i really like, thought it would all just be feminazis and it really is not that that's not the, that's not the majority of mm-hmm. his work which i find uh, pretty interesting and i think he's just he's a classical liberal um who mm-hmm. got caught up in a thing yeah. um and and it's a ministry that's kind of what what it is and he's aware of it, and it's fascinating and and to uh just reduce it to reduce him as an alt-right car- caricature or a fascist character which i think they were trying to do in the new york Review of books uh recently mm-hmm. is just a, a, a gross misread Gen- of the situation. generally That's speaking right. most of those caricatures aren't aren't particularly helpful in allowing us to figure out what people are talking about and it's most, also in most contexts and it's fascinating to to like figure out why that is resonating um and what that can uh, teach a teach a person about uh you know the the art of political persuasion or just discussion uh, right now in contemporary life. And I, I don't have any conclusions about it, but it, it is it's more interesting just than, hey, look, a bunch of, you know, Charlottesville Nazis like this guy. Um, Matt, there's actually a useful segue in there. Um, one thing that I'm remembering, Brett, is I saw the appearance that you had on Rogan with uh, Peterson. And there was something that you did a few times where you would talk about markets, markets in journalism and in the academy and articulated a belief that there were certain things that markets ought not do, that they shouldn't touch, that they are perhaps corrupting by virtue of coming into contact with things. And you also mentioned earlier in our conversation here, like market failures, the, the two sort of big questions I have, which are perhaps challenges and may come across as that, um, are that markets aren't really particular things with a set of values. This is a, a mechanism for exchanging things. And determinations about whether or not something is good or bad aren't really made by the market. It's the individuals in the market. And if people are making decisions about the things that they want to buy on the basis of advertising and messages and narratives that are active in the universe that we live in, I mean, in much the same way, there's a market for goods that requires money. There's also a market for political narratives and messages. And there are two methods of organizing a society, the political means and the economic means. And one of those things requires force. And the other is people voluntarily exchanging things. When I hear somebody say um, that there are areas that the market shouldn't go, I immediately get nervous because there is one alternative in those other universes. If the problem I foresee in journalism is that a market for news gives people what they want, not what they need, I'm not certain that a state-run news agency is likely to give people what they need either. It might not even give them what they want. It could be infinitely worse. Um, So the disposition of weirdo libertarians like me is generally not the market is perfect. Let the market handle it. It's I don't know what else we could really do here because the democratic process, the opportunities for political failure are myriad even if the the opportunities for economic failure are myriad. Okay. So there's not there's not much of a question there. No, but you no. see what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, I know exactly okay, okay. where you are and and uh and I I I love this prompt. I'm hoping that I can capture all the threads that connect to it. Okay. Um the first thing is uh 
I'm going to level a gentle accusation at you. Please. Okay? You sound to me like somebody who's suffering from what I call political PTSD. Okay. And political PTSD in the modern landscape typically manifests as somebody who's seen liberals come up with crazy ideas for fixing things that make stuff way worse. And you see this enough times and you begin to think maybe we just shouldn't let the liberals near the control mechanisms because they don't get it well enough not to create, you know, some state news agency, which is way worse than a market delivering you news and giving you choice, at least about which propaganda to pursue. Camille would also add conservatives to the liberals, but sure. yes, go okay. on. Certainly. anybody. Yeah. Right. So the basic idea is I want to frustrate anybody who wants to meddle in order to make things better because in general, they just make things worse. So I totally get that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, many of the people in the intellectual dark web who are classical uh, liberals, mm -hmm. right of center, classical liberals, I would argue are also there because of political PTSD. It's a very visceral experience to watch do-gooders screw up a system based on an, uh, a lack of appreciation for unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. So I totally get that. I ain't one of those. I really don't want to see um, heavy-handed governance. But what I do want to do is point out that there is a distinction between markets doing the mechanistic thing that you talk about. Mm -hmm. And I would just, I would draw the distinction very clearly. Markets are, in general, the best mechanism we have for figuring out how to do something, right? They are excellent at answering the how question. The problem is we keep giving them the what question, what problems to solve. And a market is another name for an evolutionary environment. And the problem is that markets find every niche. So there's a saying that I'm not particularly fond of in ecology because it can't possibly be right. And the <laughs> saying is um, uh, that there are no empty niches. Now, I can't possibly be right because every sure. niche has to have started out empty, right? But if we put aside what the ecologists actually mean by that, and we just simply say that there's a tendency, anytime there's an open niche, right? Anytime there's an opportunity for some creature to figure out how to exploit it. And that niche may look like your blood is insufficiently protected while you're asleep. And so a mosquito can get it. And sure, sure. Malaria, this, that, the other. So my point would be the thing that is bad about markets is not the how. It's the what. Because what it keeps doing is discovering niches that actually no reasonable person should want discovered. Right. You don't want your cell phone to have the characteristics of a cigarette where you are engaged with your cell phone far more than your rational self would want to be because some very sophisticated algorithm on the other side is figuring out how not to let you put down Facebook and go over to Twitter, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Twitter and Facebook locked in a arms race to keep your attention is causing way more of your attention to be focused on your phone than should be there, right? So I don't want to see your access to things that you could actually rationally want eliminated. And I don't necessarily want to tell you what you should want, but I will say if you, if you, if the conscious part of you evaluates how you spend your time, you'll find that it isn't anywhere near what you would want. And the reason it isn't anywhere near what you would want is because there's a hostile force out there that's actually conspiring to get you to waste your time and waste your money. <laughs> your DNA. <laughs> well, your DNA makes you vulnerable. Uh -huh. It certainly does because a satisfied organism is not an evolutionarily successful one, but a sure. dissatisfied organism is 
one on a quest to find opportunities. Sounds and, almost um, Misesian, um, by, by which I mean Ludwig von Mises, who has this uh, concept, human action is the book he wrote, and there's a concept of uneasiness in there, um, which suggests that uneasiness, a felt uneasiness is what compels all action. It is, uh, it underlies all action. Sure. Yeah. If you were totally satisfied, Sorry, you just, you wouldn't, you wouldn't discover any of the opportunities right. that are, that are around you. And that's so, why the replacements were a great band. Don't yes. <laughs> I will understand that joke <laughs> later today after some Google. Sorry. But, um, <laughs> um, but in any case, um, you are prone to dissatisfaction for ancient evolutionary reasons. Yes. Advertisers and others who wish to manipulate you against your interests, exploit that vulnerability. Uh -huh. You don't want them exploiting that vulnerability. So if I can just wrap this up in the following way, I'm not arguing uh, for something draconian. What I'm arguing is that there's a huge difference between the television. I don't know how old you are. I'm closing in on 50. The television I grew up on was largely pretty garbagey. Mm -hmm. by virtue of the fact that it needed to keep you in your seat through commercials, which were the way it was funded. Yeah. Um, HBO is not a perfect entity either. It's a product of a market, but it delivered a much higher quality good, you know, a program like The Wire, right? The Wire was a really challenging program that wouldn't have been a success keeping you in your seat through commercials. You know, it was too hard. You actually had to learn this dialect of Baltimore and even to even follow an entire episode of the thing. And the point was there was a hunger for a story that complex mm. with that much gray in it. Right. It was a good um, narrative and it sold very powerfully to a small market. In fact, they kept threatening to cancel it because the market wasn't that big, but it was very passionate about the show. My point is, you got the same screen broadcasting two qualities of good. One is what happens when the market is just running rampant, trying to manipulate you minute to minute so you don't switch channels. And the other is what happens when you pay for the good up front and you say, I want access to your channel and then I want you to deliver me stories that I feel good about having watched after months, mm -hmm. right? One of those is just superior at delivering you stories that are actually worth your time. But the way we got HBO is that the people, the Newton minnows of the world who thought TV was a vast wasteland and he controlled the FCC in the 60s, those people with the same sense of kind of do-gooding um, and we want to make sure that you're getting high quality uh, programming, they created artificial scarcity on the dial. And it was when they decontrolled, when they mm -hmm. were not going to have a fairness doctrine anymore, we're not going to tell people what their quality should be, that opened the gateway for HBO to give us quality. Although right? interestingly, TV viewership down now, screen use like mobile phones, et cetera, is increasing and we're increasingly consuming more video there. But I wonder, I, I suppose I am perhaps a little more a little more skeptical of the ability to to game people, um, at least the sophistication that advertisers have so far to, to game people, um, and perhaps a little more bullish on the opportunities that are created by technology to make life better. It's, it's certainly true. I spend a lot of time on like Twitter and other stuff on my phone. I also have the Headspace app and I use it for meditation and I discover community and develop relationships there. And, you know, there've been concerns in the past that were quite similar with regard to other technologies, like the, there's that famous photo of everyone reading the newspaper on the way to work in the morning. 
Um, and I often wonder if a lot of the concern about, say, screens, et cetera, might add up to the same thing. Um, but that's, I suppose that's a sort of tangential point to the, to the broader concern about, like, uh, the academy and journalism and to sort of bring this conversation back to where we began with the academy. You, you've cited something similar, and I don't know if it was there or in another context, but you suggested that perhaps the market is what's creating, helping to create a situation where the academy is deviating from its, its core purpose in a way and trying to cater to students' desires. And that, that may in fact be true, but I, I wonder if that's actually, unless there is some outside force that is running all of the academies and forcing them to adhere to that standard, the only actual obstacle that we can erect to the academy going off the rails and, and creating a product that is bad for students and bad for society at large is the individuals like have to want something different at, at the end of the day, because it's, I always wonder, you know, is it fake news or is it, is it just the fact that people aren't really interested in the news? They're not interested in the nuance. They want a, a summation of things, whether or not it captures all of the important relevant facts. So the problem is the market is going to discover every niche. Some of them won't be stable, right? But it's going to discover the good and the bad. And the question is, is there a mechanism for dividing the how question from the what question that causes it to discover more elegant, possibly less stable solutions that are only stable if we don't let it discover every challenger um, that deliver more of what you want at a lower um, cost in terms of other values, mm. right? And so in some ways, that is an open question. Yeah. On the other hand, if we take it to your university uh, analogy, the market has clearly disrupted the function of um, discovery, scientific discovery, and of education. And it's clear, if you have an open mind and you're, you're inside that structure, you can see it. Meddling has made it even worse because the meddling has largely not been even the do-gooders. It's been by capture. So um, Eric, years ago, my, my older brother discovered uh, an intervention that on the basis that there was going to be a shortage of scientists, a glut of scientists was created. But if he, he dug down and he found that actually the real reason that they wanted to create a glut of scientists was not that there was going to be a deficit of scientists because there's no way such a thing is possible, right? To the extent that there's a deficit of scientists, the wages of scientists go up, that causes more people to go in. So the market corrects that defect and it will generate more scientists to the extent that there aren't enough of them. The reason to create too many scientists was to drive their wages down because you could project that their wages were going to cost a certain uh, large fraction and that amount could be reduced by creating artificial, um, uh, an artificial glut, basically extra competitors who are always ready to take your job, which now manifests itself inside the academy as an absurd level of competitive vigor within disciplines, right? Where do we see that? Well, we see that very clearly in the replication crisis, right? Mm -hmm. So the replication crisis... Well, no, no one is bothering to do any replication with the replication crisis, Well, the right? problem is once you start to try to replicate, you discover that a lot of the things that you think are true on the basis of what look like valid scientific papers aren't true because we can't see them twice. Mm -hmm. Why is that happening? 
That's happening because in order to get ahead, in order to get one of the small number of academic jobs with the large number of competitors seeking it, you need a long publication record with lots of impressive findings. Right. How do you get that? Well, you uh, get fancy with your statistics and you start hacking. P hacking is exactly what you discover. So. What, I will argue you'll see this. I, I will refer everyone listening for, for the sake of brevity to uh, a study. Uh, why most published research findings are false. Uh, just, uh, John, I'm going to screw up the pronunciation of his last name. It's Ioannidis or something along those lines. But in either case, you'll find it. If you search for that name, there were a number of articles written, I think, back in like 2010. Ron Bailey wrote a bunch of reasons. Yeah, there, there was a lot of attention given to this at some at some point in the past. And then people seem to forget. But the general insight there was that most published studies. Right. I was just asking for jar- jargon. Issues. Like P hacking. What's and the P? Uh, P hacking is one mechanism for uh, creating a result that you're looking for, um, whether deliberately or not in a way that still seems academically rigorous. P is the letter P. It stands for, it's in the P value. It stands for probability. So, sorry. So P stands me. When, when you hear that a study has found, it has a significant finding, it's by virtue of the fact that the statistic P is below the number 0.05. And so it's the 5%, problem is so one in 20 chance that the right. result that you've got is due to chance. Right. So it's a very robust mathematical formula that if you properly apply it actually does tell you something important. It tells it's a big you the, the chances that you would have found this result by random if there was no actual pattern. Mm-hmm. The problem is because the assumptions that go into it are sensitive and because it and um, the assumptions that go into every statistical test are sensitive and most people employing statistical tests aren't statisticians and are ignoring the assumptions that they need to abide by. Therefore, many statistical results are suspect. Sure. So just to take one perfectly dumb example, P less than 0.05 means that the chances that you would have found this uh, particular result by random if there were no actual pattern is less than 1 in 20. What if you run the study 20 times and you report the one time it came out significant? Right. Publication bias. Exactly zero. Right. But the point is you can't detect that as a reader of journals. You can't detect all the studies that were never published because they didn't show anything. Because negative results don't get get published. Yeah. So anyway, we've got to basically fields are full of people who figure out how to game the system, whether they understand that that's what they're doing or not. They're generating invalid conclusions in order to get a job that's very hard to get. And it is causing a corruption of what we actually understand to be true. But the, so this, so that's people chasing incentives. But I, I wonder because, and this will be my last attempt at this because I'm, I'm trying to to, to bridge uh, understanding here. But if I were to say that instead of a market for academic um, for academic pursuits, higher education, um, people are voluntarily pursuing their education at these institutions and these institutions are voluntarily giving them educations and everyone wants to attract more people to their institutions in order for their institution to be more prestigious and better respected and regarded. They all want the best talent. They're all competing for talent. I mean, this is a, this well, are they though, or are they just competing for tuition dollars? Um, I mean, they're competing for both things, and this is the like markets are dynamic. There are all sorts of things that go into dis- determinations about the things we want. The I might be interested in the the economic benefit. I might be interested in the status benefit or the community. I don't know. It's it's value is subjective. So the reason I placed I asked the question that way is because it takes it out of the 
the realm of sort of the commercial aspect of it doing the corrupting and introduces something different, which I think is very much in line with what you're outlining here, that there there is a universe of potential gaming of any system that comes into place. And this appears to be, I mean, the university is rife with them, you know, and all of the biases that you just underscored when it comes to publication of results, it all exists. But I, I wonder if there's any way to actually expunge all of that. So one of the things that Jonathan Haidt argues, I think aptly, is that there is a fundamental incongruence between a university who identifies its goal as social justice mm -hmm. as opposed to its goal as the search for truth. Yeah, I've seen that. And the goal of social justice is really appealing to some people uh, in the short term. And the search for truth is inherently uncomfortable, disturbing, ugly, mm. muckier, you know, it takes longer uh, more rewarding, more intellectually satisfying, more resultant in actually getting at reality in the end. Um, but it's a long-term versus short-term incentive issue. Mm. And so the markets, if, if you just let the markets do what they do without identifying that there are different long-term goals from, from the short-term goals you might be having, yeah. you will end up with more and more universities falling to the, you know what, we're just going to go the social justice route. Right. And, and, um, en route, we will put in a lot of fancy swimming pools to attract students with the most tuition dollars to yeah, pay. Yeah. So uh, I want to try one more thing Please. to compel you that there's something down this this road worth paying attention to. I'm, I'm listening. Okay. Um, there is a a very uncomfortable conclusion that I think people who have seen the beauty of markets um, are a little bit resistant to recognizing, which is the difference between an immature market and a mature market. An immature market is actually kind of a beautiful place because there are opportunities to be discovered. People who are good at innovating tend to find them. They tend to succeed economically. It can be a very beautiful thing. The problem is as markets mature, they begin to reward other things. Um, I would say you know, if we're to do it in common parlance, they reward ruthlessness. If we're to do it in more proper economic terms, they reward rent-seeking behavior. Mm -hmm. And so the danger, I think, is that when you see a market do something marvelous, you tend to think, aha, this is a beautiful mechanism, just let it work. The problem is to let it work is to let it mature. And once it matures, the carnage is incredible. Right? The amount of damage that a market will do once it reaches the stage where innovation is very, very difficult, but rent seeking becomes easier and easier for those with power. Right, That's a stage we don't need to live through. We could recognize the tendency of diminishing returns to take the beauty of markets and turn it into the horror of markets. Mm -hmm. And we could recognize that there's an inflection point at which the price of rent seeking is too high. Mm -hmm. And we can intervene in ways that basically give us the value of a very free market when you have uh, when it's immature enough for that very free market to be the engine of innovation. And then we can um, step in and prevent the market from parasitizing us, which is what rent seekers do. And really that's the distinction I would like to see. And if there's, you know, if there's one plea that I would make when you hear a liberal who has a problem with the market, uh -huh. You tend to categorize that liberal in a particular place because we've all heard, you know, about the horrors of capitalism. 
I'm trying to tell you, I'm a liberal. <laughs> I love markets. No, this I is love a, them for what yeah, they do well. It's a very I'm, eloquent, ex, some very eloquent exposition. It, it demonstrates that you have a an extraordinarily high degree of competency when it comes to, to how markets work and operate. And I, I completely respect that. Um, the one thing I might add to my earlier um, exposition is that when it comes to my concerns about the political sphere and the possibility for political failure, it's not merely like my own trauma that I've seen and witnessed, or even a, me glancing back at history and finding all sorts of ugly wreckages uh, that way. It's also the fact that the system that we're talking about relying upon to allow for these interventions is the same system that gave us Donald J. Trump. And I am deeply skeptical of democracy perhaps for reasons that are similar to the reason why you might be skeptical of uh, a, a commercial market for some good. And I don't know that there's much reason to believe that the kinds of decisions reached by people with not just imperfect information. I mean, they're electing people to do sophisticated economic work and management of really complicated industries that's highly, highly complex, all sorts of opportunities for unintended consequences. And they don't have the tools to do it themselves. But for whatever reason, we believe that in the aggregate, they will have the tools to select the person that can do this, Ah, which is a little frightening. It's frightening. <laughs> I'm frightened of that, too. And I would just say this is the moment in history, I think, yeah. when we have to recognize that um, the founding principles of this country, plus several that have been added later that we have discovered are important that weren't in our founding documents, those principles are vital. Mm. The structure that we've got is feeble. It is incapable of handling this. And maybe it's even parallel to the problem of mature markets. Maybe mm. the point is this structure has run its course and it is time to take those values and rescue them from, frankly, the fact that our founders didn't know anything about evolution. And so they didn't understand that they were building an evolutionary system that would take on its own characteristics. And so, you know, again, I, I imagine people hearing that may fear, you know, a liberal who's not a patriot. And I'm very much a patriot. But my point is I'm, pat I'm patriotic to the values that the system is built around. Mm -hmm. I'm not particularly wedded to structures Mechanisms. from the 18th sure. and 19th century that I don't think are up to the challenge of dealing with modern tech and modern people. Um, so what I would love to see is the adult conversation in which we say, all right, you know, what's the wheat? And what's the chaff? Mm. How do we separate those two? And how do we rescue the important part from the part that's antiquated and not up to the challenge? Mm. This has been extraordinarily fun. I, I'm going to shut up now. Matt, you got anything else before? No, we we're good. Okay. Heather, would you, thank you, you have so any much. closing thoughts? No, nope. thank you so much. I am enormously grateful to both of you for stopping by. This has been very satisfying for me. Yeah. Um, I hope it's been satisfying for the folks who are listening um, and that their eyes have not completely glazed over. But I, we have a very, very high IQ audience. No, there's just high roll, IQ rolling <laughs> at you. But, but beyond that, it's fine. Yeah. All right. Cool. Done? I think we're done. Thanks, guys. This was great. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Bye. We, we, we Bye. know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 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 Column.